The biggest thing is to be clear on what your goals are. If you want to build a business that one day will thrive without you, then you will set the course now. You will create processes. You will document processes. You will probably look for systems and tools to help you streamline. You'll realize that while you are talented, you don't want the business to be orbiting around you and have it all be about you. You want it to be about the team, the process, the product, the service, the brand. And you'll, you'll think that way. You'll have a growth mindset. You'll have a mindset towards structural capital, social capital, customer capital, all these things that help make a business more valuable. Ending small business failure. Welcome to the Small Biz Chat Podcast with the number one small business expert, Melinda Emerson. Melinda's goal is to end small business failure, and she'll give you the information you need to succeed and live the life you dream of. Now, here's your host, the Small Biz Chat Lady herself, Melinda Emerson. Hi, everybody. I'm Melinda Emerson, Small Biz Lady, America's number one small business expert. And I'm so excited to welcome you to another edition of the Small Biz Chat Podcast. We have an amazing show today. Now, here on the Small Biz Chat Podcast, we talk about how to start and grow successful small businesses. And my guests have amazing insight to share from multiple angles. Now, we think of the Small Biz Chat Podcast as a peer-to-peer mentoring opportunity for you. So I want you to listen close, take notes, because my guests are going to give you invaluable advice that is going to help you take your business to the next level. Because here at the Small Biz Chat Podcast, our mission is to end small business failure. Now it's time for me to introduce my guest. Lori Barkman, the CEO of Small.Big, it's a business transition advisory firm helping business owners maximize value, create succession plans, and identify merger and acquisition strategies. She enjoys developing structured plans that empower business owners to live their dream. For more information, go to small.big.com. Lori, welcome to the Small Biz Chat Podcast. Thanks, Melinda. It's exciting to be here with this wonderful group. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, 80% of business owners want to stop working in their businesses in the next five to 10 years. But you say that most have not planned for that transition. How can people improve their businesses so they actually have something that they can sell? That's the million dollar question, or it could be more than a million dollars, depending on your business. And that's what makes it difficult, but not impossible to solve. It starts really with where they are. I like to talk about where are we today? And it's like holding up a mirror to your business. Do you see where the tripwires are for risks? Do you know which things are lying around in your business that if you said, well, wait a minute, if we just changed a few of these things, the low hanging fruit, if you will, that it could improve value. And then there's the big stuff. And there's eight different value drivers. I'm happy to talk about any or all of them tonight. But at its core, there's external things that drive value or take away value. And there's internal things, things that we can control. And what I like to do is work with clients on the things we control. And in summary, it's really how do we create value? 
help you minimize risk and transition with success. That's the mission. All right. So before we get into the eight things, because I do want you to tell us what they are. Tell us, how did you become the business transition Sherpa, if you will? <laughs> that moniker came around. I think this really started for me several years ago. I was the CEO of a division of a privately held company. And the entire company, including our, our group, was acquired by a strategic company. It's a Fortune 50. It's a household name. Everybody would know it. And it was a really interesting experience to go through the, an M&A process from the inside. So I was one of several executives that went through the acquisition, went through the integration, and then on the other side of it, working with the big company and, and seeing it through. After I left, I worked in private equity for a bit, and then I was on the other side of the deal table. And I guess I figured out that I like deal, doing deals and I was a deal junkie. But at its core, I have been orbiting entrepreneurs for a very long time in startups, entrepreneurship in large companies, people who have the entrepreneurial spirit, people who have purchased businesses, acquired businesses, you know, acquisition entrepreneurs, people who have, have bought franchises. And the common theme throughout and why I call myself a Sherpa is it's not about me having the answers. It's about me helping people um, see what they're not seeing. And there's a funny story too, if we have time for it, about the name of my firm and why I call it small.big. But it's really about having a different perspective, that aha moment. And that's what I find as one of my superpowers. Love it, love it. So why do you think that, you know, two out of 10 businesses are not sellable? Like what is the biggest issue? Um, is it that people businesses are worth a heck of a lot more than they really are like like what would you say is the reason the biggest reasons why businesses are not sellable there's a there's a lot of reasons as you can imagine a very common reason is because the business really isn't transferable many businesses in our country are what we'll, what we think of as lifestyle businesses where maybe it's one or two people the business is probably in the hundreds of thousands not millions and so we can all get our heads around that and think, oh yeah, that's not really a transferable business. But even as a company gets bigger and it hits a million dollar threshold in revenue, that's a pretty good threshold to hit. But still between one and 5 million, there can be a perception of risk about transferability in small businesses of around that size. And why is that? Well, in many cases, the business is largely organized around the owner. The owner might be the rainmaker, the person that's really bringing in the majority of the sales. Uh, how long has it been since you've taken a vacation? How long is your vacation when you do take one? And are you really checking email or not checking email when you're on vacation? And so that's a good, that's a good thing to just sort of check in on yourself. I do a business assessment. I offer a business assessment. Hundreds of business owners have taken this assessment. And that is one of the questions. When is the last time you took a vacation? But if you peel back the layers of the onion, what we're really trying to understand is what are the risks associated in your business, not only about you, but if you have other employees. And that is one of the things, and, and I just mentioned the eight drivers, is a key aspect. We call it the Switzerland structure, which is about neutrality. And it's not only neutrality for employees, which includes you, but it also includes um, risks around your suppliers and risks around your customers. Do we have too much customer concentration? 
let's say you've got a really profitable business, it's a healthy business, and even if it's north of a million dollars, what if more than 60% of your revenue comes from one customer? Yeah. And then that customer goes away. Mm-hmm. So those are some examples of, of transferability risk. And I think it's a big, big reason why a small percent of companies actually have a transaction. But to the, your point earlier, Melinda, which is a great point. Yeah. A lot of times the, there's a gap between what the market thinks the business is worth and the owner what thinks what the business is worth. Because let's face it, in the private market, it's in the eye of the buyer, just like when you're buying a house. All right. So if I want to get started building a business that I can one day sell, what do I need to do to start preparing for my business transition? The biggest thing is to be clear on what your goals are. If you want to build a business that one day will thrive without you, then you will set the course now. You will create processes. You will document processes. You will probably look for systems and tools to help you streamline. You'll realize that while you are talented, you don't want the business to be orbiting around you and have it all be about you. You want it to be about the team, the process, the product, the service, the brand. And you'll you'll think that way. You'll have a growth mindset. You'll have a mindset towards structural capital, social capital, customer capital, all these things that help make a business more valuable. And it's hard for those who seek the ego and the identity from the business ownership, right? Another question on the survey is, do you own a business or are you a business owner? Mm -hmm. And there's a nuance there, right? What is that nuance? Well, the nuance is, is can you be arm's length? If you really have that identity, you absorb that identity, it's harder to let go, isn't it? And that's true just as a human. It's harder to let go, especially when your name is on the door. If you've named it because you are the founder or perhaps you're next gen and you're gen two, gen three, whatever it might be. I have a podcast called Succession Stories and we're coming up on episode 100. And I've talked with so many wonderful people who talk about these challenges. So there's really no one problem that we can say, oh, this is the most common thing. There's also no one solution. And, you know, we just have to take it everybody's a snowflake and that's okay. But there's definitely some patterns that we see. I like that analogy. Everybody is a snowflake, right? There is individuality out here. But now I know that there's a lot of business owners that want to transition their business to their kids. Let's talk about that because if, if you want your kids to run your business, do you make them buy it? Or do you like kind of hover around and, you know, micromanage, maybe do an earn out? Like, like what is the best way that you've seen people transition their business to their family or to, to their children specifically? Well, on my show, I've talked to, to wonderful multi-gen companies. The most exciting example is Generation 10. Just pause for a minute on that. Wow. The company was founded in 1767. It's an Applejack brandy company and layered. And I spoke with a mom and son. So she's Gen 9 and he's Gen 10. And that's a, that's a special legacy. And none of the generations truly own the business. They own it for the next generation in a mindset, right? They know they're handing it down. So the mechanics of do they buy it, do they not? I actually didn't ask them those questions. 
In other company examples, like Highlights Magazine, if uh, any of you are listening or have children, you might know Highlights. I remember it from when I was a kid and so looked forward to it in the dentist office. The CEO of Highlights is fourth gen and Ken, Ken Johnson, wonderful, wonderful person. And the way he thinks about the legacy of his company is that it's not about him. He's so strong in that culture. He doesn't want to be. And his mindset is it's about the future and really creating a sustainable uh, future future thinking organization. And so if that's where you are, if you're Gen 1 and you've launched your company and your vision is to have an organization that's going to thrive without you, and you want to make it a success and you want your children to be part of it, that's your vision, which is great. Your kids might have, one, not the interest, and two, not the skill set. I've had conversations with people on my show, on air, off air, you know, in consulting and talking to clients. Also, I have years of experience in human resource management. It was my undergraduate degree. So I come into, um, I come into all of this with a practicality, right? That it is essentially, it needs to be a fit. If junior wants that, wants that role, but junior is not qualified, junior needs to not be in that role. And, and, that's a, and that's a reality. Sometimes there's a skip generation where we hire in a leader from the outside, get, help get the next generation ready. So your question of should they buy it, should they not? Again, it depends because, and I, and I think I also have to sort of uh, acknowledge here that there's tax consequences, estate planning issues, and we really wanna consult our advisors if you work with a wealth advisor and a, and a generational planner for estate planning, that's a really great thing to be doing if you have a business and you want to maybe be gifting shares to set up trusts. There's all kinds of mechanisms. I am not the expert on that. I can just point you in the right direction. And that's what I'll do tonight. But I think, you know, realistically, again, it comes back to your goals as a company, as a management team, if you have a board, if you have a family advisor board, if it's just you and you're talking to yourself, that's okay. Maybe you're in an organization like Vistage or YPO and you have peers and you know they've done other things. It's great to get advice, and, and, and but when it comes to decision-making, get the facts and then put a plan together. So let's talk about the sell side of a business. So if you, how do you keep the emotion out of the the process of selling your business because i mean you might think it's worth 10 million dollars and somebody will come in and offer you two and it's like how do you act like they didn't just call your baby ugly do you know what i'm saying like oh i know what you're saying and i've seen it up close and personal it is very it can be very emotional that's the benefit of working with someone like myself i have a client who is a self-acknowledged emotional person. And I knew that coming into the working relationship. And it's kind of like a running joke. He, he's very humble about that. And he knows, he knows that about himself. However, we did have a situation with a buyer where emotions ran high and my client decided to walk away from the opportunity. And there was nothing I could say or do. Um, I think there were some emotions that, that you know, it's a competitive situation too. And that's the other comment I'll make about emotion is when you're looking to sell your business to a competitor, there's inherent emotions already. Mm. So that can also create other dynamics that we need to be well aware of. There's also emotion when it comes to decision-making between family members. 
there is a situation I, I was not part of this, but in the storytelling on my show, one person talked about the deal was, was ready to be done, ready to be signed, but then, uh-oh, we got to tell grandma. And then when there was the conversation with grandma, grandma was like, oh no, that's not happening. And the deal was off. Grandma was a driving force, a decision maker who we'll call the economic you know, decision maker um, in that situation, but she wasn't consulted early enough in the process. Right. Right. So doing an end around is not that like, you know, if you know you got a difficult family member, you got to talk to them up front, right? Because trying to come to them at the last minute, that's a great way to get the whole thing torpedoed. Interesting. So when it comes to figuring out what your business is worth, I mean, you know, I went to business school too. So it's like, it's some multiple of EBITDA, right? You know, earnings before taxes, but, but I mean, how do you figure it out? Well, I mean, well, that's it, probably it's its own session in and of itself, but I'll do my <laughs> best to summarize. And I think there's a couple of different ways to look at it in the non-MBA language. I'll try to do my best here. And your, your math is right, Melinda. It is very common. One of the things that I start with, and I do valuations. I'm a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor. I do valuations for clients. And it's a great way to get started in a relationship because if we have a gap in what they think it's worth versus what my estimate is, we have to talk about that. And if it's too far apart, then maybe we can't work together. But if it's reasonable and I think they're reasonable, we're in the ballpark, that's great. The way we do valuations at Stony Hill Advisors, it's a firm that I'm that I'm affiliated with for the M&A work that I do. We look at it a couple of different ways. Um, because we're looking at lower middle market companies, privately held companies, they share tax returns with us. We ask for three years. We take the financial information that we're given, right? We're not auditing their information. We're not verifying. We're just we're given that information and that's what we're working with. And so we take the three years and we try to understand also uh, if there are any expenses that have um, been one-time expenses, maybe they're personal, maybe they're business. Maybe they are personal and they are recurring expenses, but they're personal, not business. However, we need to understand that and we need to separate that. Likewise, if we've gotten income or revenue that's one time, well, maybe it's a giant credit that we've gotten either from the government or from a customer situation. So we look for any anomalies. We try to adjust, make adjustments in the net income, which is what we call seller discretionary earnings or the acronym would be SDE. And if there's reasons to do an ad back, we look for reasons for an ad back. So like I was saying earlier, taking money, uh, taking expenses out. So that would make your, that would make your net income number higher, or we're going to add money back in because perhaps you are undercharging yourself for rent. And if someone else buys your business, they probably need to pay more for rent. So that would be considered something we would put back in. And so that gets us a adjusted EBITDA number. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times there's a multiple of EBITDA. There can be a multiple of SDE. There can be a multiple of revenue. Some companies have backlog and they have a pipeline. And there's a very a variety of ways to look at that. So how do we know what that multiple is? And, and across those four different areas, it's not the same multiplier as you can imagine. So what we do is we look for comparable sales, just like in real estate. And we have databases and we pull that. We try to find recent comps. Let's say within the last five years, we try to look at uh, deals that are relatively of the same nature, size, industry. 
And we plug that back into the model. We also look forward and we say, well, can we do a discount cash flow model? It doesn't work in all businesses. If it's a recurring revenue business that has a high percentage of recurring revenue, then that would make sense to project forward. And then also in this business assessment that I mentioned, where we have some of the intangible value drivers, I look to get a quantifiable measure on that and use that as another data point in my analysis. That's a lot of technical information. <laughs> so, I, mean, I mean, I do know enough about this to be dangerous, but you just made my head swoon just a little bit. But listen, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I asked the question, so I deserve to make my head hurt, right? I want to understand how can someone use a roll-up strategy or a mergers and acquisition strategy to scale up and really add more value to their business so that they could be more attractive for a potential buyer? At the top level, there's two ways to grow, organically and through acquisition. I'm a big fan of organic growth. That's what I've done in my career over and over and over, especially on the marketing side. So I get it. It's fun. It's hard work. And you want to figure it out, especially if you're a startup. That's where you're at. But eventually, your organic growth might flatline. There could be shifts and dynamics in the marketplace that are causing that to happen. There could be internal reasons why that's happening, but a lot of times it's happening. So what are we going to do about it? When you're big enough and we're interesting and interested enough to look outside of your business and think about acquisition as a growth strategy, it can be very, very interesting and compelling. A couple of examples from folks who've come on my show, these are not huge companies, right? So your listeners who are thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not a, a big company. How can I afford to do this? Well, I don't think you have to be a $100 million business to buy other businesses. One rule of thumb, just to put it out there, typically what we see is the five and 20 rule. If your business is between five to 10 times large, excuse me, five to 20 times larger than your target, that's about right. If you're the same size as them, yeah, that might be tough. Why is that? Well, you got to go get financing. And you're either going to get financing from an SBA lender, a small business loan from the, you know, the US government is underwriting, or you're going to get a commercial loan from a bank. And so those are small business lending opportunities. Now, what are the bankers going to do? I talk to bankers. I've gotten some pre-qualification letters for businesses that I'm representing for sale. And it's really interesting. Sometimes, uh, well, a lot of times I should say from their end, what are they looking at? It's the same information that I'm looking at when I'm doing my valuation. They're doing the same thing, Melinda. What they really care about is a ratio of your cash flow to your debt. And they call it debt service. Is the business going to produce enough cash so that they can you can pay off your commitments on time? That's the biggest thing they care about. So therefore, the business has to be big enough that you have enough padding. You don't have take on a lot of risk because you're also putting your personal collateral up, perhaps, right? Or if you have a house, imagine, right? So you, you got to really think through those things. But growth through acquisition is really, really important. The other thing about being big enough and being able to take it on, you know what it's about? It's actually about the integration. Integration is the biggest thing. I like to do strategic planning with clients and especially a client that's big enough to do an acquisition. Guess when we do strategy for, for the integration? It's not at the closing. It's in the beginning. Right. If you wait to the end to do your strategy on how we're going to integrate, 
it's really probably not going to go well. I can see that. I can see that. So, so let, on that note, let's talk about what are some of the common pitfalls of mergers and acquisitions? Well, from the sell side, we talked about a number of them, that there's a disconnect between the seller's opinion of what the business is worth and what the market is telling them. And another one is, uh, is readiness. That's a really big one. There's three aspects to readiness. We've hit on a number of things tonight, what I'll call business readiness. Is the business ready to sell? Is the owner and the business, are they sell ready? That can be a huge disconnect. Ready to sell versus sell ready. Just let that sink in for a second. We think we're ready to go to market, but hold on. We've got this risk, that risk, this risk. And so as we start to talk to buyers and putting the company out there, what's going to happen? We're going to see a discount in the price. Maybe we want 700K, but you know what? The offers are coming in at 300. Why? Well, we've got retirements happening at the top level. Our business owner is so tied in with the sales process. And we've got a customer concentration list that is making people run the other direction. You know, it can be any number of things. Um, another derailer is the other owners. The other owners are important. We've got to get them on board. Whether they're family or not, they're still, they might still have a vote. There's one situation that I was in that the seller was making too much money um, just in cash flow. He's the single shareholder. And even though he's in his 70s, and he has no succession plan, he wanted to keep going because selling the business wouldn't necessarily replace his cash flow and his lifestyle. And so that's another reason. And what is he doing? Well, he's just holding on. And he's at this point, probably 75. Now you would think somebody like that would have planned for retirement so they wouldn't feel like they still had to run their business because they liked making whatever a month. Now, Obviously, a transaction intermediary is very helpful for dealing with some of this stuff or having some of these hard conversations, right? Absolutely. We provide a sense of grounding. For me, one of my things is clarity. A lot of times business owners just feel that they're running you know, circles day to day. They're so involved day to day. It's hard for them to think about the future, but they know it's really important and they know they should. They also are not familiar with the process. And for many business owners, this is the only time, this is the one transaction. And the folks who try to go on their own many times end up turning to us and saying, this did not go well, I need help. Why? Because emotions can get in the way. Someone is telling them their baby is ugly, right? Or they really need to focus on the day-to-day -day and it's difficult to run an M&A process and run your business. And we also have the expertise of doing this and, and doing this for 15 years and, and we do see a lot of things when they go wrong and we see things when they go right. And we can provide, I think, not only the clarity around the process for the business readiness, but also the personal readiness and helping them get organized financially. We tend to have pretty solid Rolodexes. And I know for me, one of the things I really bring to the table for my clients is the introductions to other professionals who can help them and in a way that they need. And I've got the, the bat phone, you know, and these people pick up and that's a big thing. Like you can't just, you know, get a law firm partner on the phone. Like some of us can, if we, if we have those types of relationships. I could keep talking to you about this stuff all night. What is the best piece of business advice anyone has ever given you? <laughs> I think that 
it's my one of my early mentors and he basically said it doesn't matter if people are reporting to you or not you need to be able to influence without authority and have the confidence to do that and i've really taken that with me throughout my career and it's helped a lot with client work because i don't manage them right they they are my boss but i'm helping to influence a direction in a process lord what's your favorite podcast there is a podcast that i'm blanking on the name but i'll talk about it generally and it's about second actually now i think of it it's called second act it's the second acts and it's second act stories and i love it because people tell about what's next in their career and their life and they're very inspirational love it love it all right lori what's your favorite app i really like otter.ai like the animal otter it is a artificial intelligence platform that does text, uh, voice to text transcribing. It's not 100%, but I don't know if there are systems that are 100% yet, but it's pretty good. And I use it for transcribing. You can connect it in with Zoom. So let's say this podcast, right? And after the podcast is done, it creates a transcript. So it's really, it's really awesome. What's your favorite old school marketing tip? Fish where the fish are. <laughs> Love it. I, I believe in that, especially online. You don't need to be doing five plan, five platforms. Do one. Um, wonderful. What is your favorite business book that you've ever read? Talk about old school. This is from my senior year of college. Ken Blanchard was a speaker for a weekend presentation. And as a senior in college, to see him live, it was incredible. And I bought the book series from the One Minute Manager. I, I still have it. I have the series. And I think this one is about building high-performing teams. Love it. Love it. My favorite business book is Disrupt You by Jay Samet, because he says, if you want to disrupt the world, start by disrupting yourself. Well, thank you so much, Lori. You have given us so much valuable insight on how to build value in a business, and it has just been invaluable. And thank you all for joining me for this episode of the Small Fish Chat Podcast. If you're still working on your digital pivot, please check out all of our offerings over at Small Biz Lady University. You deserve to make the money that you need to make online. And we've got all the tools over there to help you with it. And the last thing I want to tell you is I want to leave you with this. You never lose in business. Either you win or you learn. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Small Biz Chat Podcast with Melinda Emerson. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and join us next Wednesday for more fantastic information and interviews. You can find more sources and small business success strategies by visiting Melinda's website, succeedasyourownboss.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.